I am going to um, offer you a quote that many of you C.S. Lewis fans will, will recognize. It comes from the, the series that he wrote called The Chronicles of Narnia. And if you've never read the books, um, they're an allegory of, the, of, of Christianity, a rather imaginative one. And if you haven't read the books, you should. And, um, and if you haven't, maybe you've seen the movie. But there's this quote, and, and actually it's a quote that we find in a number of different ways throughout his, um, his writings to communicate a truth. And this particular one comes out of a conversation that Mr. Tumnus, who's kind of this half-beast, half-man, um, has with little uh, Lucy. And they're talking about Aslan the lion. And Aslan, is, as you may or may not know, is kind of the allegorical figure of Jesus. And, um, and he kind of comes onto the scene, and then he goes off the scene, appears and disappears through, through the Chronicles. And Lucy asks about that. And uh, Mr. Tumnus responds to her, to her question about him coming and then leaving. He says, um, one day he'll be here, and the next he won't. But, he says, you must never press him. After all, he is not a tame lion. That, that key phrase, he is not a tame lion. It's referring ultimately to Jesus. To which Lucy then responds, she goes, nope. As in, no, he's not a tame lion but he is good. Now, C.S. Lewis has a way of, of um, artistically bringing together diverse truths that almost seem opposite, but in fact they represent the truth of the Scripture, that our God is, is not a tame God, that, that where there is careless contempt and or arrogance, there is actually a very deadly and dangerous side to him. In addition to the other side, that God is never mean, but he is always, always completely and exhaustibly, graciously good. And both of those two aspects, um, C.S. Lewis didn't create. They weren't his making. They arise out of Scripture itself. These, the idea of God's majestic holiness as well as his lavish, steadfast love. And those two parts of who God is are throughout the Scripture. And um, where... The church or teaching or God's people do not include those two things in their view of God, then there is a distorted view of who he is and it, 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 it results in a distorted life because we misunderstand him. God is not a tame God, but he is good. And um, the passage that we look at this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 6 brings out both of those things. Um, in a way that King David is going to learn a very, very important lesson. Now, if you haven't been with us, uh, last week we were in chapter 5, where the, for the first time, David, King David, who is the ancestor of Jesus, um, is crowned king of all of Israel. So all Israel has finally been united under a man after God's own heart. David makes another move, and he, he centralizes his capital in Jerusalem, a well-known city, as we know. And um, then he's defeated the Philistines. And now in chapter 6, he does something extremely important. And that is he is going to centralize the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And he's going to do that by retrieving the most sacred piece of furniture in the tabernacle. Um, namely, the Ark of the Covenant. Not to be confused with Noah's Ark, the boat. This is um, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, the most sacred pledge, physical, visible pledge of God's presence among his people. 
So this chapter, David goes and retrieves it and brings it up to Jerusalem. But along the way, he is going to learn, along with the people of Israel, a very important lesson about God, namely that he is not a tame lion. So let me um, begin by reading the first part where David goes to retrieve the ark. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. So he's going to take an army actually down with him to bring up this box that measures roughly four by two by two. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, Yahweh, of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now before this moment, just for your historical understanding, the The ark had been put in exile, in a manner of speaking, for almost 70 years. Because in a former time, and it's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 6 if you want to read it, um, we we find 70 men of Israel die for merely looking upon the ark. And as a result of those 70 men dying for simply looking on this holy object, the people of Israel said, "Um, who is this holy God that anyone can stand before him? And instead of repenting, they mothball it. That's what they do. So for 70 years, the central pledge of God's presence to his people has been in exile. And David is now going to retrieve this sacred uh, chest. Now, it would do us all good to just pause and remember, for those of you who know this stuff, or maybe for learning, for those of you who don't, what this Ark of the Covenant represents. And if you want a visual, you have to think of Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? They pretty much kind of get it right, only there's no ghoulish creatures that come out of the box. Um, it, it is this, 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 uh, this box basically made out of acacia wood and covered with gold with these uh, cherubim across the top. But it's what the Ark represents about the heart and the presence of God that's really important. It is, for all practical purposes, a throne. In fact, that's what it says here in the text. Um, the ark that's called by the name of Yahweh who sits enthroned on the cherubim on top of this, this, this chest. Uh, so it is, it is viewed as the resting place of God's throne. So it's the idea of his kingly, holy sovereignty. That's one idea to keep in mind. The other thing that this ark is called repeatedly in the Old Testament is the mercy seat. The spring or seat of God's mercy for his people where a priest one time a year would go in on Yom Kippur and pour blood on the mercy seat um, to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. So it's a place of mercy or saving grace. Sovereign holiness, saving grace. And then the third thing that it represents, and this isn't to exhaust what the ark meant, but the third thing is that it's also a place of revelation. Inside this box were placed the Ten Commandments, the very words of God that he had written on stone. And it would be the place where, you read the stories of Moses, where God would repeatedly speak to Moses from this place. So those three things, and keep, I want you to keep them in your mind, that this, this sacred pledge, visible pledge of God's presence, symbolizes God's holy throne, his um, redeeming mercy, and his own self-revelation. That's what it represents. It is the the visible, physical representation of, of Almighty God. Now, rightly, David wants to bring the heart of Jewish worship up into Jerusalem. So they begin the parade with these 30,000 people, and perhaps more. Those were just soldiers. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart, 
and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill in Uzzah. And this looks like Ohio, doesn't it? But it's A-H-I-O. Uh, Ahio, I believe is how it says pronounced. The sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart. And the ark of God, uh, with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before Yahweh with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and ca- uh, castanets and cymbals. So you get this idea, the sacred object is going on a cart up towards Jerusalem, and, and people are worshiping. I mean, it's, it, this is a five-star moment in Jewish history. Um, people are praising and singing. The worship band is rocking away with all of the instruments, you know? And from all outward appearances, it would seem like this is just one of those high points in Israelite worship when the symbol of God's presence is being brought into the capital of Israel. But if this were a movie... I'd venture to say that the the music underneath this parade, as everybody's striking up the band and Chris Tomlin's singing, you know, um, is that it would start to go a little bit dissonant at this point. You know, like in movies when you sense, like, everything looks good on the outside, but underneath you're like, whoa, I sense something bad's about to happen. And and I want you to know the dissonance is already starting to play, though nobody recognizes it. Just a little potent reminder that just because things look on the outside like they're alive doesn't necessarily mean they're healthy. Well, this, this cart bearing the most sacred physical object, uh, representing God's holy presence, his throne, his mercy, and his self-revelation, um, hits a rough patch. Um, Judean hills are, are rocky hills, um, for those of you who have been there. For those of you who ha- haven't, we're going in 2015, and you ought to come. Um, but it's a rocky place, and somewhere along the Rubicon, you know, up towards Jerusalem, um, the, 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 the cart starts to be tossed um, to roll and so forth. And, and the priest next to this, this sacred object looks and realizes that it's in danger of falling off the cart. And so he does what probably most people would do with an uninformed mind of the holiness of God, and he goes to steady it, and he grabs a hold of it. He grabs hold of the most sacred um, representation of God's holy, merciful, self-revealing presence that God has ever created in terms of a physical form in the Old Testament. And this is what happens. It says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God, and David was angry because the Lord, or Yahweh, had broken out. I'm going to come back to the words broken out in a second, against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah. Perez means break out. It's another word for um, what's in the middle there, verse 8, to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? He's afraid. So here you have this, this wonderful moment of, of, uh, of worship going on, praise, and the band is going. All of a sudden, like the, you know, like the needle on the record just goes right across. There's one of the priests twitching on the side of the, of the cart, and his last remaining life is, is going out of him. And David recognizes this. God just struck this man down. And it creates in him an, a sense of fear, like, oh my goodness, what are we taking up into, into Jerusalem? Uh, now, the question, of course, for us is like, what's the big deal? You know, in our 21st century culture where, where this seems overly impulsive of God to, to strike a man down for touching 
with what seems like good intentions of steadying. It seems like, wow, God, you're just like way over the top, like you lost your temper there. Well, you know what? When, when the Lord gave instructions for this, this holy object, he gave very, very clear, crystal clear handling instructions. And those handling instructions were for the protection of his people. They weren't overly restrictive in the sense that God was just being nitpicky. Now, whenever you have in the Bible the presence of Almighty Holy God connecting to sinful man, there is always death. Because that's how God in his righteous, mighty holiness reacts to sin in his presence. A potent reminder of why we can't simply die and go into the presence of God. To go into the presence of a holy God uncovered is to die, to be completely and eternally separated. Those handling instructions that God gave to his people as a protection for them, from him. And by the way, the ark was a gracious gift. I mean, this is God's way of saying, hey, listen, um, this is my way of saying I'm with you. That my throne is with you. My mercy is with you, dwelling in your presence. And I'm revealing myself to you through this, this, this symbol. So it is a gift of grace, but all of the, the handling requirements are to protect the people from God's holiness. It's a loving handling instructions. And several things God said you will not do. One is that you will not touch it. You will not touch this object or you will die. Because it's holy and you're sinful. Two, when you transport it, you will transport it with certain priests and they will carry it with poles so as not to touch the actual ark itself, not a cart. And third, you must not even look upon it, which is why they would drape veils over it. That's just how holy it is. So there's no touchy, no wheels, and absolutely no looking upon it. That's how holy it was. And here we have at least two strikes. They decide they're going to carry it on a new cart. That's, that's, that's um, transgression number one. And God said, you will not um, you know, carry it in any other means. And uh, by the way, the parallel in 1 Chronicles 13, which tells the same basic story um, from a slightly different perspective, tells us the cart was the issue. But here also, it tells us Uzzah touched it, and that is violation number two. He touched this holy... Um, representation of of who God was, and God struck him down. And as a result, David is completely um, afraid, uh, panicked. And so he puts the ark back into exile um, for for several months. That is, he he mothballs it again, because he's he's afraid. He has a a, a panic-stricken fear of the thing. You know, it just... I was... I was reading this, and what came to my mind this week as I was studying, like recognizing that you can't treat something carelessly um, of the, you know, what happened in, 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 in Texas. I wonder if the people in town really knew what would happen if that fertilizer plant went up. Did they really know like, like, that it was going like, to level blocks of buildings? Um, I kind of get the sense that David recognized at this point, like, oh my goodness, we can't take this thing into Jerusalem. Or we're all going to die. So he mothballs it for three months. And then, 
after three months, he gets word that the house of the people who are taking care of this mothballed um, representation of God's presence were being blessed. Because that's how God intended it to be if it was cared for in the proper manner, as a, as a means of blessing people with his presence. And David recognizes, okay, now this is the good side, right? They, they, they've learned now that, that, that God is not a tame lion, but God is a God who is good and, and wants to bless his people. So David recognizes, hey, this, these people are being blessed by dealing with this appropriately. And so David goes down again. We might call this Ark Retrieval Take Two, all right? Ark Retrieval Take One ended in death. Ark Retrieval Take Two is very different. Notice the details. So David, this is after the three months and hearing that God is blessing this family that's taking care of this this chest, sacred chest. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark, notice, now they're carrying it correctly. Those who bore the ark had gone six steps he, David, sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Now, the sense of the text, I think, is the idea that as these priests are carrying, every six or so steps, they're sacrificing animals. Now, I told you, whenever you have holiness and sinful man come together, there's death. And here we have not the death of Uzzah, which happened in take one, but the death of these animals. Because that's what happens when sinful man enters into or touches the holiness of God. There is death. There is blood. But now they're doing it the correct way. And now they are rejoicing. And we'll go on next week to talk about how they rejoice and so forth. Now they're, they're, the, the, the blessing of God's presence is enlivening their worship and they explode in praise because they're approaching God on God's terms. Now there is where I'm going to stop the story and I want to tell you what two things I believe this story teach us that I think have um, pretty focused relevance for our culture and for how we often view God. One thing it teaches us is this, that we must approach God God's way. We must approach God God's way, not our way. And you might be thinking, yeah, but Dan, we don't have an ark anymore, right? It's faded into history. It's either decayed, it's been destroyed, it's in a cave, or God sucked it up to heaven. We don't have an ark anymore. And that's true. But the ark was never intended to be the full and complete substantive presence of God with his people. I told you the ark... Um, embodied at least three things. God's sovereign kingliness, the throne, spring of his mercy, and his place of revelation. And that wooden box, which was a symbol, found its substance in the baby who was born in Bethlehem, who was the word made flesh, who was the spring of God's mercy, and who is the sovereign king of the universe. What the ark represented truly was was Jesus, who played that piece between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, in which he bore the sin of the people, and then God crushed 
him instead of us so that we might be free from our sin and we might be clothed in his righteousness. And so I want to say is that while we may not have the ark, we have something much better and more permanent than the ark. And Jesus is God's established way by which and only way by which we may come to him without fear of perishing. You hear that? Now, now what does that do in our culture? Well, well that, that is the, the idea that we have to come to God on God's terms and in, in a Christian case, if you look at the, how the Bible flows out, that means coming to God through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. That means there's not a lot of different roads. And while we as Christians should be respectful of people of other religions, don't buy into the fact that there are, in fact, other roads. All other roads are dead ends. There's only one road that God has established, and it's through the life and death and resurrection and our faith in the Son of God, period. We have to come to God on God's terms, and that is a truth that is throughout the Scripture. So, if it, it, again, the challenge to our thinking is don't buy into the pluralistic postmodern garbage that there are many roads. In fact, God has laid down um, the most gracious, um, self-revealing, loving, and yet satisfying the holy wrath that he has towards our sin way in his son. That's one thing I believe this story teaches us. The second is the need that we have, especially in our context, to nurture a reverence for God as God. A reverence... Um, the Bible uses the word fear, which is easily misunderstood. But the Bible retains the word fear because the word reverence isn't quite strong enough. That there is to be a, 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 a fear, a trepidation, a trembling of our hearts before someone who is so um, awesome in the biblical sense of the word. Where there is no fear, then... Um, we're living in a kind of careless contempt for God's majesty. And that is, a, that is, that is something that I, I believe, while the former generation may have heard so much about the anger of God that they, in their view of God, see him as very angry, we in this generation and younger, I think, are, think of God in the opposite and, and maybe more of a, coddling parent or a cozy friend or a pushover kind of God so there is less and less true reverence or fear of the Almighty. And to, to remember, listen, to remember that, you know, at some point in human history the Bible has declared over and over and over again through prophets and apostles that the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, is going to come and he is going to wipe away and eradicate the fallen powers of this world with nothing more than the sword of his mouth, which is his word. And that people at some point, according to Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, kings will climb into caves and they will call upon the mountains and the, and the rocks to fall upon us and hide us from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
to keep those two sides together, recognizing, yes, Jesus is a loving and gentle shepherd and Savior, and yet he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. You read Revelation 5, 6, and all the way to the end, those are works of the Lamb. To recognize that he is high and exalted, he sits in a place of holy kingliness. Yes, he is gentle, but he is also not tame. And that's a piece that I think, you know, needs some nurturing in our time um, so that we can live with a healthy fear and, and also love. Now, I know, as I hope you know, that our primary motivation for, for what we do is, is our love for the Lord, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because he so much more first loved us. But a close second to that motivator is the fear of the Lord. And fear and our love for God are not opposites. I was reminded of that when I was thinking back to the first time that I went up the mist trail and then up above the mist trail to the top of Half Dome with some friends. And never done it before. But it happened to be a, 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 a landmark snowfall year. And so, and we went in May, end of May. And um, I'm going up the mist trail in the Merced River I mean, there, there, there's water coming out of places and waterfalls that they hadn't seen in a long time because it was so, so packed with snow and the snow was melting. And at one point, I'm, I'm, I'm walking up the trail. Some of you who have done this will remember this, um, where there is this kind of steep embankment. It's, it's granite, and it's covered with moss because it's the mist trail. The mist comes from this massive waterfall, Vernal Falls, you know? So mist coats us. There's, there's moss everywhere. And the, the Merced River is just violent, I have never seen water just churning and, and rolling over sharp granite rocks with sound like that. And I thought to myself, if, if a man slips in there, he won't exist even a quarter of a second. He'll be completely shredded by all those rocks and the power of the water. So I moved over as far as I could away from this mossy side. And the next year, by the way, I took my own son, and my wife told me, if he doesn't come back, you don't come back. So I just, you know, <laughs> make sure that I keep us both, you know, off the side, although it wasn't one of those landfall uh, record snowpacks. So anyway, this time, we, get, we were making our way up the trail, get to the top of Vernal Falls, where the Merced River and all of its force is just plummeting off this, this chasm, you know? And there's this rail there. And there's signs all over the place, you know, do not swim, or you will die, you know, it's right there posted with loving rails. Now get, get, get this, okay? People travel from all over the world to see the beauty and the majesty and power of that very place. And at times, people have lacked reverence and fear for the power of that place. And you'll remember back in 2011 when a couple of young people decided they wanted to take pictures on the other side of the signs and the other side of that rail. And one slipped and then another and they were swept over. And you know what happened. I'm, you can determine whether what I'm about to say is true, but I'm willing to say that there are a lot of people who populate the churches these days who are willing to step outside that rail and put themselves in a very precarious place because they lack this thing called the reverence of the Almighty. And I'll tell you, that, 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 that waterfall is powerful and as awesome as it was. It just 
if you think about it, does not even compare to the God who breathes and galaxies are born, before whom we will all stand. Um, there ought to be this fear and trepidation of his mightiness at the same time, the securing effect of knowing he loved us enough to die for us, but both of those must be true. And they work in life where you might not feel love in the moment, fear should kick in. I mean, it can motivate us to repent of sins, a compromised lifestyle, um, to forgive somebody, um, or, or to reconcile, to persevere. I remember some years ago, a couple who were seasoned in their marriage over, I think, four decades stood up here. And, and remember, they were sharing with us to encourage all of us who are younger in our marriages about how hard it was the first years, you know. In fact, uh, one of the parties said, you know, I didn't even like him. In fact, she used the word, I loathed him times. Remember that? Those of you who are here? And she said something I'll never forget. That in those times when she loathed her partner that God had given to her, she said it was the fear of God that kept her going. And now, of course, they have a very full and vibrant relationship. But there's times when, brothers and sisters, we ought to stand in holy fear of God. And, and it, it does help us to, to be faithful in times when maybe we don't feel love in the moment. Um, it's, it's the fear of the Almighty. And again, it's the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs tells us. We're told that God delights or takes pleasure in those who fear him and who hope in his steadfast love. Even Jesus taught us, don't fear men who can kill the body. I'll tell you who to fear. And that is the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. You know, send you right over the, the, the cliff. So if, if you're here this morning, there's kind of two parts to this. If you're near that rail in your life, and you know you are, or maybe you're on the other side, I, I hope you recognize that those signs in that rail are loving. And they're saying, don't go beyond the boundaries. And maybe this morning, is the, this morning you'll recognize, as David did, this is nothing to mess with. And that you will ask the Lord for the grace to repent and come back on to the side that's safe. Um, because God is not tame. And for others of us, just sort of be reminded, you know, there's only one hope that we have in the shelter of what's coming. And that is we take refuge and we take shelter in the Lamb who gave his life for us. The way that God himself has ordained, this is how you come to me, in which not only will you live, but you will flourish. And you will find joy, you will find resurrection life. And that is through the death and the life and the coming reign of my son. Trust in him and him alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We must come to God on God's terms, and we must nurture a healthy sense of fear. You take just a second and just say, Lord, how do you want me to respond to this? Maybe it's to, you're on the wrong side of the rail, or maybe it's just to be re-cemented in that it's in Jesus and Jesus alone, the true ark of God where we find our refuge, where we find the spring of God's mercy. Let's take a couple of minutes as the worship team comes.